The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Dad, what's wrong with the telly? Good evening, London. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. We think, just let me think. Even now, orders are being shouted into telephones and men with guns will soon be on their way. It's chance of settler. Damn it! Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words offer the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression. And where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have sensors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and selecting your submission. We need cameras. How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you, and in your panic you turned to the now High Chancellor Adam Sutler. He promised you order, he promised you peace, and all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent. Inspector, you're almost through. Last night I sought to end that silence. Last night I destroyed the old Bailey to remind this country of what it has forgotten. That fairness, justice and freedom are more than words. They are perspective. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 20th, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Paul McKeever. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where, we'll, where we will be with you and from now until noon today. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And welcome to the show today, where those of you who aren't already on holidays can call 519-661-3600 to reach us today. As we talk about a basic theme in the spirit of the season, we bring you Freedom's Greetings, because that's sort of the theme of our final show of 2012 today, Paul. Absolutely. And Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas and all that sort of stuff, you know, because I thought uh, this is actually an extra show. The whole university is shut down. We weren't even sure. We want to thank uh, Ryan Bates for coming in today and operating the show for us. Thank you, Ryan. And um, otherwise, we would have had a three-week holiday, because we'll be (laughs) back on January 10th. Just want to make clear that that, uh, that's when the next live show will be broadcast. Up until then, you'll be getting um, reruns, as they call them. Or no, not reruns. They're called encore performances. (laughs) So that's what the radio industry calls them now. (laughs) Or reminders. Yes. So uh, we'll be looking forward to a new year and a lot of new issues coming up. Uh, You know, we were once asked by a listener much earlier this year, to describe how a free society would look like and how it would work. Yes. And he asked us to do it without always contrasting it against its totalitarian alternative or even to what we have today, which uh, some would call a mixed economy, maybe a mesh of mixed ideologies politically, leading to certain areas in our society where we have fewer freedoms, where we have more freedoms, depending on the issue and area involved. So 
it can be a very confusing thing, especially when you're living in a mixed economy and you see elements of freedom along with statism. You th- it almost leads people to believe they can exist side by side forever. Right. Right. No matter how little they have of one and how much of the other. Right. So, you know, I started thinking, where, where does one start in describing what a free society would look like on those terms? And I, I didn't find it easy to do it. I, don't, I can't say that I've even done it when, when we get through this whole thing. But I thought the place to start would be by defining what a free society is as simply as possible without having to spend the whole quarter hour explaining it, right? Sure. So, I'm thinking a free society operates on the principle of individual rights, we know that, under a government that's committed to protecting life, liberty, and property. Now, to both government and the individual, the principle of consent has to be the operative principle. And it must be understood that the only way to violate this principle is for either individuals or governments to initiate the use of physical force against other individuals or governments. Are we sort of on the same page? I'd say more or less. I'd say uh, the only way to do it is to make sure nobody obviates that consent, Mm -hmm. whether it's by physical or non-physical means. Well, that's all part of the retaliatory and defensive use of force, really. But in a free society, again, both individuals and governments are free to use defensive force in the protection of life, liberty, and property, but certainly not free from the judgment of others. And in a free society, we generally delegate retaliatory force as a function delegated to the government in order to place that government under objective and equal laws in pursuit of justice. So that's kind of the sketch of what a free society has to be in a structural way, I guess. Now, if you heard the opening clip this morning, that was from the movie V for Vendetta. I, I... know that you've seen the movie yourself, Oh, yes, Paul. yes. And I just watched it for the first time last week after we used a clip from it on a previous show a few weeks ago. Robert said, you should watch this show. And I thought, wow, this is kind of a skewed version of Atlas Shrugged, in a way. Like, in the, not, not in the content or the philosophy, but the way it's done. The, 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 uh, the idea of this guy, you know, it's sort of like Atlas retaliates, right? Yeah. And, well, it could be like the pirate in that, in that book as well, using the, the boat off the shore to true. steal the, the country's gold. And, uh, but in this case, of course, he gives his speech, just like the John Galt speech, while, <laughs> while he's blowing up cities and stuff like this. Right. But then again, you know, I think, then what do you do tomorrow after you've blown up all the government buildings? There aren't any left to blow up. Where do you go from there? And exactly. what, what do you do to build? Now, got to go back in time here, because we actually tried to answer this question a long time ago. And that was when I was in the newspaper quote-unquote business with Mark Emery, who was a libertarian activist at the time. And he painted his vision of a free society in his publication, the London Metro Bulletin, by literally rewriting two versions of George Orwell's 1984. And uh, because this was published in 1984, this is when this was done. And uh, he did uh, two versions, one Canada as it is, and the other one Canada as it ought to be. So there you have your is's and oughts. Okay, yeah. You, you talk you about a lot, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, I couldn't help but refer back to that issue last night, and um, I've brought with me a sample of how that comparison opened in each of Mark's scenarios, and it's an interesting... I thought it'd be a good starting point. Um, it's possible I've quoted uh, from this briefly on the show before, maybe five or six years ago, so I think most of us have forgotten some of this. <laughs> but um, here's how Mark started his 
uh, Canada as it is, 1984 novelette. Now, by the way, the whole thing is available online now, isn't it? Yes, if you go to freedomparty.on.ca slash archive and just look for downtown, or sorry, uh, London Metro Bulletin, you'll see all four issues. Is that right? In their entirety. And they're all PDF and you can read the whole thing. You can even search them. Or you can even just send us an email and we'll send you the link if you want to know, you know, get a direct read of it. Absolutely. But here's how he starts the one side of the story, uh, Canada as it is. Quote, 7 a.m., Winston cracked his eyes open. An authoritative voice from his radio alarm is repeating the main themes of the latest government restraint program over the state-owned radio network, the CBC. Winston's head slowly unfogged. Listening to a newscaster quote the government's minister of finance was no way to wake up in the morning. Another restraint policy, Winston mumbled, though none too surprised. He understood the significance of another government restraint policy. The government would penalize all workers in the country with across-the-board tax increases, but highlight to the press only the grants and subsidies it was giving out to special interest groups. Clever. Each budget was promoted as a government restraint policy, but in reality, the government spending would continue to, to skyrocket unabated, the deficit would continue to grow, and taxes would continue to go up. Now, that was the, the opening of his version of Canada as it is. Now, here's the same opening of the same story, Canada as it ought to be, by Mark Emery, and it reads like this. Winston cracked his eyes open, 7 a.m. You see how clever that is? In his first version, he says 7 a.m., and then Winston cracks his eyes open. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The voice voice of the radio announcer sounded like that of a man who had put Benzedrine into his morning coffee. It was legal. He probably did, thought Winston, as he lurched out of bed. He had a busy day ahead. The radio alarm kept playing the morning newscast. News stories included the expansion of the newly built Mormon suburbs north of Hyde Park that had sold out as soon as it advertised. A boycott of a downtown theater and the owner's other businesses for showing some lurid movies. The construction of three new factories in the eastern area outside the old city limits and other business developments. End quote. And so, the comparison of what we have today with what Mark thought described a free society began. And uh, again, you can download the whole thing. I didn't want to read the whole story, but it gives you an idea of how he managed to approach even that question. Mm-hmm. You know, how we are now and how we would be then. But of course, what he was describing wasn't exactly what we might be describing. And it's interesting, back in 1984, Mark of, uh, some of Mark's predictions for a free society included the following... Uh, and this is funny, quote, seemingly overnight, solar power, wind power, and coal power appeared on the market, right? Well, we didn't get a free society. We got a state society in those areas especially, and we got the solar and wind power, but, <laughs> but no not coal. The coal. <laughs> <laughs> the coal. Coal for Christmas, no coal for Christmas. Yeah, the clean coal's only down in Texas, I yes. think. Yeah. And, uh, which, is, of course, is, is a place we should go to, to more clean coal. Sure. And he also describes society in which, quote, government welfare no longer existed, nor children's aid, nor social workers, all of which, of course, were taken over by private voluntary agencies. He describes a society in which, quote, a private unemployment insurance company went looking for a job for you. Okay, that's sort of what a private insurance company would do, I guess, if you could even get private UIC. <laughs> right. A society in which, quote, all prisons were profit-making, self-sufficient communities. Now, I knew Mark at the time, that was a big issue with him. 
uh, prison reform, which was really interesting because he had no inclination he'd ever be in a prison at the time. And, of course, today, I'm sure the folks who run the Mississippi prison in which he currently sits have already heard about this theory. <laughs> well, and he has some different views nowadays, too, about how wise it is for a private sector uh, firm to operate a prison. Yes. And the balance of his essay was peppered with words like responsibility, justice, choice, laissez-faire, competition, voluntary, opportunity, marketplace, risk. But the essay and the comparison was not in the end about what a free society or what it would be like to live in one was really all about. And as illustrated by the introduction to the feature itself, I quote the following, and it says, This section contains our view of 1984 today. Editor Mark Emery has taken the character Winston from the book 1984 and placed him in present-day London, Ontario. Kind of sobering. <laughs> to balance things off. That's how Mark always wrote. Part 1, 1984. Who could ask for more? We have surrounded the article with a Monopoly board game satire. And it does have that around yes, the edge it does. if you look at it. Yeah. And Part 2, 1984. What it ought to be is our sequel to the present-day statism and destruction of individual will. Our sequel shows a nation without government. Yeah, there's his anarchism. Yeah. <laughs> right? And there's the anarchism. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, so you say. I suppose I could predict any number of freedom scenarios if all that freedom meant was an absence of government, right? A nation without government? Then, you know, then why wouldn't such a future scenario also possibly include nightmarish views? Sure. Of a society without government, you know, roaming bands of, of independent agencies of force, you know, organized crime, disorganized crime. Oh, yeah. Um, Protection money. Yeah. You know, which irony of ironies is almost what we have today. Sure. Because governing is not what is going on. Not now and not in Mark's scenario. No. And we, we don't have a government. Bob. No, not what we would call governing. That's right. Um, but more to the point of our focus today... Freedom can only be described as a condition. This is where I've had my problem. You know, I, I could describe how I think my life might be in a free society, and if I knew something about another individual or you, I could say, well, maybe this might be different or that. But whenever you get into predictions, forget it. I well, mean, that's because, because society itself is free. It doesn't have to go one way or another. That's part of the whole point. Yeah. And I always... Real, I've realized, especially since reading John McMurray, who's one of my favorite uh, philosophers, you notice I have his book here. Notice the title of yes, it. Yes, The Nightmarish Book. <laughs> Conditions of Freedom. And he explained amazingly that that, that is what freedom is. It, it, it's what you arrive at when a whole bunch of other elements are in place. It is a condition. You can't just say it's a thing. You can't point at it. It's not like that. But most importantly, he said, quote, Freedom is the expression of our own reality, end quote. In other words, to John McMurray, and I think to the way we think, too, yep. a free society is one in which you can be real yes, without being punished for it. I, yeah, you can live according to your nature. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, of course, in a free society, government is one of those essential in ingredients that Absolutely. you have to have yeah. in order, <laughs> ironically, to be real. Now, that doesn't mean government's always a good thing, depending on who's running it and how they're running it. But you can't run, you know, can't throw government, governing the idea of that itself away, which even most not too politically aware people, I think, recognize. And, and isn't that part of the problem, do you think? Because, you know, people always say, well, they take government. Yeah, government's a necessary evil, they call it. 
And uh, but I think governments are getting a lot away with a lot of unnecessary evil, oh, if yeah. you want to put it that way. And trying to distinguish one evil from another is an impossible task. But because the problem is in that definition, there is no such thing as a necessary evil. No, right. And a lot of what the government doesn't isn't isn't evil. In fact, right. it's a necessary good. And if it's necessary, it has to, by definition, be good, doesn't it? I mean, if, whatever. If we're that talking nec- about human nature, yes. yes. So what we really need to do is to be able to distinguish good governance from evil unnecessary governance or bad governance, if you want to call it Or non-governance, really. Right. So that's our problem today, I think. Our so-called governments are doing a lot more than just governing, particularly when they violate the principles of consent in social and economic relationships. That's where they really get into a lot of problems. Because when they do that, they abandon their legitimate function and purpose. Once you've put all your efforts into... uh, trying to regulate the economy, trying to organize things that are economic, that aren't really the function of government, then government begins abandoning its proper functions, its good functions, Mm -hmm. the ones we need, which I think is a little bit how we got where we are today. Now, it's it's an amazing reality in light of the reality that the cost of government is the largest single expense borne by the middle class average family that most don't want to get involved with the political process. But boy, don't touch my precious vote, yeah. right? And, uh, but most people, I, you talk to most people, I don't think they really know who or what they are when it comes to their relationship with government. And, um, you know, to add fool to the fire, if that's fool to the fire, yeah. most do not understand the fundamental nature of government itself, of governance. Um, the, 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 the idea that govern, governing, governing always involves force somewhere. Oh, yes. And so when you're doing anything by government, you're saying, is it proper to do this by force? And that's one of the issues that we'll be dealing with as we continue with the show after this following break. So let's take a quick break for a smile and a thought on this public paradox. Thanks, guys. That's nice. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, Good to be with you. A lot of debate about the war lately. Democrats saying pull out, Republicans saying finish the job. It's like the angel and devil on my shoulders during sex. Maybe I really am a Republican. I voted for Kerry. I'm still getting emails from him too. It's kind of pathetic. Like, there's still work to be done. Yeah, there is. Delete. (laughs) Not by me. It's kind of sad when you have to spam the guy that you voted for for president. (laughs) Bush, Kerry, and Nader. Those are the choices. Although Nader, you know when you take a multiple choice exam and they tell you to immediately rule out one choice is crazy? That's Nader. It's like the square root of 324 is A, 32, B, 18, C, chocolate. (laughs) Well, I know it's not chocolate. That's Nader. (laughs) 
Did you ever read the works of Shan Yu? Shan Yu, the psychotic dictator? Yep. Fancied himself quite the warrior poet. Wrote volumes on war, torture, the limits of human endurance. That's nice. He said, live with a man 40 years, share his house, his meals, speak on every subject, then tie him up and hold him over the volcano's edge. And on that day, you will finally meet the man. What if you don't live near a volcano? I expect he was being poetical. Sadistic crap legitimized by florid prose. Tell me you're not a fan. Just wondering if they were. The people who did this to your sister. The government did this to her. A government is a body of people, usually notably ungoverned. Well, is it? And what is a government? And what should it be doing in a free society? Or if you want to have a free society. So this is what we're going to turn our attention to now, Bob, that very question. It's an eternal question. It is. It never goes away. Every generation has to deal with it. Well, and it, and it bears repeating. So here we go. A government is ultimately a decision maker, Bob. It makes and enforces laws and policies. And, well, keep in mind now that every decision maker has a philosophy. You have a philosophy. Every time you decide to believe something or to do something, you're operating according to your philosophy. It's unavoidable. That's true even if you haven't ever identified what that philosophy mm -hmm. is. So government as a decision maker likewise has a philosophy, and that determines the decisions it makes concerning governance. A government is not a human being, though those who function to operate the government do need to choose a philosophy for that government, and they'll do so according to what it is they want the government to achieve. What is the goal of government that they want to achieve? Well, if the government's goal is to create a collective in which the group is all and the individual is nothing, it can adopt a philosophy that will lead to such an unfree society. There are many such philosophies, uh, too many to describe here in the time we have, but the results of those philosophies can be found in the history books of the world and in the newspapers. Uh, you could look at Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, or even current uh, you know, experiments with religious dictatorships in, in Africa. But if the government's goal is to move toward a free society, there's only one philosophy of governance that will achieve that end. And, and that, that bothers a lot of people too, doesn't it? It they really think does. Many it, roads to the same end. It, they they think they want to believe that uh, there is the, you know a multitude of paths, but there really isn't, and, and we're going to find out why. Because that philosophy, the reason there's only one, is it's it wasn't invented by anyone. It wasn't made up on the fly. It was the result of discovering what nature requires governance to be. Nature, in other words, as determined by uh, the, the nature of human beings. You know, what are you governing in the first place? That's going to determine what that you know, spe species needs, what yeah. kind of, you know. So, I'm going to describe this philosophy as briefly as I can, and I'll sum it up as having four pillars. Reality, reason, self, and consent. So what do we mean by reality? Well, reality means that the government, when it's making decisions, must ignore every allegation for which there's no physical evidence. If there's no physical evidence to justify acting, no action should be taken. And reality implies that a government must never appear to sanction or endorse or legitimize the consideration of anything that is not demonstrably provable with physical evidence. So let's take a, a quick example of this, global warming. What happens when the government ceases to demand that there be physical evidence? Well, we have 
Uh, lot well, of the global warming people say they have physical evidence. It's well, warmer. Yeah, and and they say, <laughs> so what do you need? At, that's right. And and we we've, we've had a Al Gore, and he gets up on a stage and he shows, look at this correlation. When CO two is higher, so is temperature. That correlation proves that man, by driving a you know pickup truck to work every day, is uh, causing catastrophic global warming. Well, there is no evidence. First of all, that the climate change that we will experience, and we will experience climate change, that's obvious. But there's no, there's no evidence that it's going to be catastrophic or harmful to human beings in a kind of unavoidable uh, apocalyptic uh, way. And there's certainly no evidence from that CO2 data that he was referring to that CO2 causes temperatures to rise because it's in fact, on a time sequence, you'll see that the CO2 rises 800 years after the temperature rises. So if anything, that data shows that temperature causes CO2 levels to rise. That was my argument when I first looked into the issue. I couldn't believe that anybody looked at it any other way around. CO2 is a consequence of burning, of right. heat. And yet right here that's in why o- we exhale it. Y- y- that's right. <laughs> and yet right here in Ontario, what did the Ontario government do? Well, they ignored that fact. They, they ignored the fact that there's no evidence that man-made CO2, which is not by any stretch of the imagination the biggest supplier of CO2, but there's no evidence tying man-made CO2 to some future catastrophic climate change event. Yet the government of Ontario, what did it do? It said we're going to close down coal plants because they emit more CO2 than, say, wind and solar. Mark's wind and solar. Mm. And, the, and they invested millions, actually probably billions over the next several years uh, at great expense and made those uh, costs uh, travel down the pipe, down the expense pipe to the consumer where we're now going to have to pay inordinate amounts of money for the same amount of electricity that could have been generated quite easily by using clean coal or what have you. In other words, using those fossil fuels. There's no evidence at this point that that would have caused some kind of climate catastrophe. So what you're saying is that demonstrates a detachment of the government from reality on that case. You bet. If you don't stick not- to the things for which you have evidence, you end up now, governing unwisely. There are, are, are people on the climate change issue who, for whom that argument might not be the strongest. They might be saying, well, let's look to the future. Let's get on to these new technologies. And there's a sense of reality to that. I mean, solar does exist. Wind power does exist. And a lot of them are looking to the government not to deal with the CO2 thing, but to, say, make us less dependent on the Mideast or other political concerns. Yeah. Um, is that, deta- is that also a detachment from reality? Or? I, th- I think at this point in time it is because they, they don't have evidence, first of all, uh, of what this stuff will all cost to replace the existing well, supply of nuclear and et cetera. I don't want to get too far off economic the, reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. economic reality. I just reality. wanted to see that the principle remained the same. Yeah. That's right. So that's acting only on evidence. Well, the second pillar here, reason. It's closely connected, but basically reason means that the government must make only those conclusions and decisions that follow logically from the physical evidence. Logic must reign supreme, not wishes and dreams, not emotions, not popularity, not faith, not alleged instincts or intuitions. Well, actually, that speaks to my second example even better. Uh, which uh, one? With the, with the global warming. Oh, sure. You know, the, the second argument, that one has to be dealt with by reason. Yes. Because it's not evidentiary because it hasn't happened yet. Sure. Right? So you have to reason it. Well, and, and it's always difficult when you're trying to tease apart facts and logic, but uh, let's have a look at what happens when a government doesn't stick to logic. A few years back, Ontario's McGuinty government uh, proposed a ban on pesticides that had already been, uh, these pesticides had already been approved by the federal government as safe for use by consumers. The Ontario government said that there was no scientific research to prove that the interactions of these various pesticides was safe. Therefore, it concluded it's uh, possible that exposure to the various pesticides collectively, the interaction, is harmful to children and others. 
and the government erroneously concluded that something can be said to be possible even when there's no evidence to support the possibility. It further erroneously concluded that you can prove the null hypothesis. Nonetheless, the ban went through because based upon fears of the unknown, not based upon fears of logic, or sorry, upon logical considerations of the evidence, uh, they wanted to do it. You know, popularity in part was guiding that as, as much as fear. Um, what was the result? The practical result, again, was a step away from freedom. A lawn care industry was negatively impacted. Weeds and pests have carried the day, and such that allergy sufferers now suffer more. And those whose lives are improved by the beauty of well-managed lawns and gardens cannot as readily achieve that enjoyment. Okay, there's the detachment from, from uh, reason. We've had detachment from reality. We've had detachment from logic. What's next? Well, let's move up the old philosophical change to the question of ethics the pillar called self. Self means that the government's decision, uh, decisions at all times must serve one purpose, the individual's peaceful pursuit of his or her own happiness. In other words, when deciding what policies and laws it's going to make, it must keep in mind, the government must keep in mind, the nature of human beings and the essential purpose of a human being's life. In particular, it must hold up as every individual's highest purpose that person's own pursuit of his own happiness. Even if the government thinks logically and acts only on allegations for which there is physical evidence, a free society will not result if the government takes the view that the pursuit of happiness is not one's highest purpose. For example, if one takes, uh, the government takes the view that the uh, individual's highest purpose is earning a place in a heavenly afterlife, its decisions might be guided or influenced by a belief that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom, kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Such a belief about a man's purpose will permeate and influence all government decision-making. So let's take an example. Consider that our public schools, to avoid ruffling feathers, refuse to teach that any system of morality or any religion or any cultural practice is good or evil or better or worse. What do you mean, suppose? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is the school system that we have in Ontario and, and probably throughout North America if it's government-owned. In fact, they also teach selflessness, not the selfless, not the self Yes. And what's the result of all that? Well, consider the recent observation of London public school teacher Stephen Anderson, who teaches ethics to teenagers here in town. He tried to demonstrate that evil exists. He wanted to demonstrate that to his, his mm -hmm. students by showing his students a photo of Bibi Aisha, who had famously appeared on the cover of Time magazine, uh, with her nose mutilated, actually cut off We've by her own family. we before, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, she attempted to run away from a bad marriage. As a result, she was mutilated by her family. Uh, and to his horror, when Anderson showed this photo to his students, his students refused to judge uh, those who had mutilated Bibi Aisha as being evil or being, you know, uh, having a, a worse cultural system than we do, a cultural practice yeah, that's worse than it was a different... Culture. Just different. They yeah. would not say anything but different. Maybe in that land that is good. You know, that, that kind of sentiment was what was the result of not insisting in our government school system that some things are better than others, that the purpose of an individual's life is to pursue their own happiness, and that Bibi Aisha should have, should have been free to pursue her own happiness, not been forced by culture or law or religion to marry somebody she didn't love or to be with that family she didn't want to be with. Now, this leaves the fourth pillar, consent. 
Viewing your purpose as the pursuit of your own happiness, consent means that the government must serve that purpose by, by opposing attempts by anyone to take a person's life or their liberty or their property without that person's consent. That opposition by government is necessary because so long as government defends every individual's power to give or withhold consent, nobody can prevent an individual from pursuing his own happiness by rational means. Now, as a few examples, and I've got a number of them here, the government must prevent an attack by foreign powers who are planning an attack if there's sufficient physical evidence that an attack is being planned. Here's a little side note. Yes, I think there is ample evidence to justify eliminating Iran's nuclear capacity, which clearly intends to be used for uh, the purpose of bombing Israel and the United States. Well, they're telling us that. Sure. Yeah, let's take they the they meet in the streets to say that we're the great Satan. So uh, what more evidence do you need? Another example, the protection of children. The government must and currently does impose and enforce an objective age before which children are deemed not to be able to consent. Before that age, the age of majority, also known as the age of reason. And is also known as the age of consent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, children lack the power before that age to enter into binding contracts. Uh, they lack the power to decide to purchase and use addictive drugs. They lack the power to consent to sexual activity. Not and that they that's don't good. do all those things. But. <laughs> well, they might, but, but the law is right yeah. in setting an age uh, which says, you know, if you do these things, it's not because you consented. And the person who led you down the garden path into doing these things is maybe very well held criminally responsible or otherwise responsible, or their contract might not be enforced. Sure. Third example, copyright. Man cannot live by merely working hard. A human being's physical efforts must be guided by the mind. And so the creations of that mind are every bit as valuable and necessary for the pursuit of happiness as are the results of physical labor. In fact, more so, because physical labor would produce nothing of value unless it were guided by the mind. So the government must ensure that the creations of your mind, books, movies, musical recordings, computer programs, etc., are not taken and copied by others without your consent. These four pillars, Bob, reality, reason, self, and consent, are the four pillars of a governing philosophy that leads to a free, free society, the only philosophy that leads to a, a free society. And it can be summed up as, the government must govern rationally. If the government's decisions and policies are rational, a free society will be the products, uh, product rather, of its efforts. I agree. We're coming down to the bottom of the hour right now. And on the other side, when we come back, we'll talk about how these ideas that where the rubber hits the road with politics and some of the personal experiences you and I have had on the political road being involved in politics. You're the leader of Freedom Party. I'm the president of that party. And there's a lot of skepticism out there. People don't think that anything can be done. And I guess, well, what you don't know can kill you, and skepticism is fueled. I think by a refusal to know that there are answers and ways of achieving a free society. Absolutely. You know, and that can be a deadly assumption, mm -hmm. as we'll find out right now and when we return after this and some breaks. Daylight. A few minutes ago, it was pitch black. It's a strange planet. I thought for sure we'd have three or four more hours before dawn. Cross the ice. And it's morning. Hey, and it's not cold anymore either. Mom, we're starved. When are we going to stop for breakfast? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what your father says. John? Oh, we'll stop in a few minutes. I want to make some observations anyway. Good. Good. Hey, do you hear that? Yeah. I'll raise the antenna. Jupiter 2 calling. Jupiter 2 calling. Chariot, do you read me? Smith. 
What's the matter with the radio? We're getting some sort of cosmic interference. Smith, this is Major West. What do you want? I can't hear you. Well, we're getting a lot of cosmic interference. Get to the point, Smith. You must return to the spaceship at once. This cosmic interference is just the first signs of... Now, why should we turn back? So you can get out of the crack at us with that robot of yours? Or do you want to save your own miserable neck? On the contrary, I'm attempting to save your miserable necks. Turn back at once before it's too late. You're in terrible danger. You've got to believe me. Smith, this is Robinson. Now, why on earth should we believe you? May I remind you, my dear sir, that we are no longer on Earth. Oh, that's very clever. And unless you turn around and come back now, you won't survive another hour. What would he make of that? Well, I don't know. He, uh, he sounds really worried. You don't suppose he... The only thing I suppose is that uh, he's an expert at sounding that way. And I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw one of those giants. Smith! Smith, this is Robinson. Can you hear me? Well, whatever it was, it's too late now. Hello, Chariot. Can you hear me? Listen to me! Hello! Lame-brained, misbegotten skeptics. Now they'll all die. you gone so they can get back to the way things were but I know the truth there's no going back you've changed things forever and why do you want to kill me <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to kill you what would I do without you go back to ripping off mob dealers no 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 you you complete me. You're garbage. You kills for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. They need you right now. But when they don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. See, their morals, their code. It's a bad joke. You've dropped the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Where's Dent? You have all these rules and you think they'll save you. in control. I have one rule. Oh, then that's the rule you'll have to break to know the truth. Which is? The only sensible way to live in this world is without rules. And tonight you're gonna break your one rule. And there we have the Joker being <laughs> lambasted by Batman in the interrogation room. You know, uh, Bob, that, that clip, you know, I, I suggested this one because it really, to me, that movie says more about libertarianism, uh, which is, you know being mentioned more and more by 
conservatives and liberals and the media that word, uh, then... Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, this Joker character, he is, uh, from top to bottom, the Nietzsche, in practice, uh, kind of guy. He is the... Uh, who the, was someone we talked about when you were on you the show bet. last, right? Yeah, he's, he's anti-intellectual, he's anti-moral, uh, he is about the negative, he's not about the positive. And his version of freedom is not like what we were just discussing in the first quarter. Uh, in the first quarter, we were talking about these rules and these philosophies that must be followed by government, a philosophy of governance that has to be followed if you want to achieve freedom. Now, freedom sometimes confused with this thing that in the political realm is being called, in recent, in recent decades anyway, libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to see what this, this ism really is, though. I'm going to go back to the father of libertarianism, arguably, Murray Rothbard, and read from a... Uh, something he wrote called uh, Frank S. Mayer, the Fusionist as Libertarian Man. Pardon me? I actually met him. In Toronto? <laughs> yes. First time when, we took, when I took over Freedom Party, it was me and Marie Rothbard on the stage. I couldn't believe it. At the Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto. <laughs> well, how, how much the, the two on the same stage could differ. Yeah, I, no kidding. You know, I was disagreeing with him at that moment, even when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what he says. He says, libertarianism, and I, this is greatly, I had to shorten this down quite a bit. He says, libertarianism is strictly a political philosophy. As a political theory, libertarianism is a co- coalition of adherents. So now he's talking about uh, adherents. He's talking about a, move, a movement of people. As a political theory, libertarianism is a co- coalition of adherents from all manner of philosophic or non-philosophic positions. Well, how can it be a philosophy if it's a coalition of philosophies? Well, we'll get into that, <laughs> including emotivism, hedonism, Kantian a priorism, and many others. My own position grounds libertarianism on a natural rights theory embedded in a wider system of Aristotelian, Lockean natural law, and a realist ontology and metaphysics. But although those of us who taking this position believe that only it provides a satisfactory groundwork and basis for individual liberty... This is an argument within the libertarian camp about what the proper basis and grounding of libertarianism rather than about the doctrine of libertarianism itself. So he says that, that there's, you know, libertarianism is effectively this coalition of people having different philosophies. Oh, and they differ about, the, you know, they, they'll argue about these philosophies, but they're all in some sense the same. And he doesn't really explain how that is uh, a, a recipe for sameness. But of course, you can't have, there's no such thing as, a political philosophy that does not include or exclude a host of other metaphysical, epistemological, and ethical philosophies. It's false that you can have a floating, separate, uh, dissected uh, mm. political philosophy. For example... It's contradictory it, just to hear it being said. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you have an allegedly strictly political philosophy that wealth will be redistributed, you thereby rule out an ethics, an ethical philosophy that says it's wrong to sacrifice yourself for your fellow man. Of course, you, you can't go there anymore. You can't go you there shut, anymore. shut the door. Exactly. So it's, it's false to say that any... Unless you want to be a hypocrite. <laughs> well, unless you want to be yeah, intellectually <laughs> dishonest or just confused. But there is no such thing as a, as a political philosophy that does not imply ethics and epistemology and metaphysics, or at least a range of those philosophies. Besides, it isn't even true that libertarianism is a political philosophy. I want to read to you something from an acquaintance of mine, uh, Peter Jaworski. is a well-known uh, libertarian activist. And he writes on, a, on his uh, older blog, Adventures in Bowling Green, uh, what, what do you have to believe to be a libertarian is his topic. And he says, 
libertarianism is broad and lacks foundations, not because libertarians don't hold foundational views that would exclude many others, but because the word libertarian applies to the conclusion of an argument and not the argument itself. When you are using the ordinary notion of the word libertarian, you are referring to people who share this belief that government should be massively restrained for whatever reason, including consequentialist and deontological uh, reasons. So, <laughs> you know, he says that he himself, he doesn't believe, for example, in natural rights, but he calls himself a libertarian. Yeah. He says, but other libertarians do believe in natural rights. So it's not the case that libertarianism is a philosophy itself. So, so what is libertarianism? What is this that, that actually binds all these... Well, there aren't that many of them, actually, in Ontario, anyway, but the, binds a couple well, dozen there, of people There's together. a lot of libertarian libertarians, not in a party as such, but certainly in other political movements as well. Or at least people who call themselves yes, that. Yeah. In every political stripe now. Sure. But at the end of the day, libertarianism really just refers to nothing more than a sentiment that can be summed up as, I want less government. And we've heard that. We've heard the conservatives say that. You know, uh, Brian Lilly might say it. Uh, uh, Michael Corrin might say it. By no means would these people call themselves libertarians. They might call themselves uh, libertarian conservatives. I'll be or, honest with you. If, if it was just a sentiment, and I did know it was just a sentiment, right? Yeah. Um, then I would not be that averse to being called a libertarian. Right. You know, if, if, if that's all it meant was, well, okay, you have a general inclination towards less government, whatever that might mean. Usually it means less intervention and more uh, personal autonomy, doesn't it? Well, it does. But here's the problem. As soon as you have that sentiment uh, used to bring together people who share the sentiment, uh, you then you then have an organization. If it has a goal, if it has a, a mm. thing that it wants to achieve, it, like any other decision maker, has to have a philosophy. So what is that philosophy? Well, <laughs> let's go back to the reality, reason, self, and consent. Mm -hmm. If libertarianism says it has no metaphysics, then there goes reason. Or, sorry, uh, reality. Right. If it says it has no uh, particular epistemology, there goes that second pillar, reason. If it says it has no particular uh, ethics, there goes that third pillar. That is uh, uh, self. It says anything goes. So let's go back to our examples. In terms of reason, I said, you know, to govern uh, rationally, you have to stick to things that, for which there's evidence. Well, there's nothing about libertarianism that says that's, that's correct. As far as libertarianism is, is concerned, maybe intuitions are good. Maybe uh, things you hold on faith or hopes or wishes are equally good. Maybe I feel it's true and therefore that's as good as I've got evidence that it's mm. true. And what will be the result of that? Well, global warming <laughs> theorists, <laughs> right? You'll end up investing in, in uh, uh, you know, wind and solar because you're afraid without evidence that you are uh, you know, somehow putting a person's life or liberty or property in jeopardy by not curbing CO2. What about, what about reason? Okay, let's turn to reason. What did I say under reason? The government has to be strictly logical. Well, that's an epistemological position. That's epistemological philosophy. And every libertarian is saying, we don't care what the reasons are why you like liberty. We, we don't have a philosophy that is particularly epistemological and libertarian. You can have any epistemology you want. Well, if that's true, mm -hmm. then faith is a means of knowing and emotions are a way of knowing and sticking up your hand and doing a count, count of hands is a way of knowing. You know, all of these are ways of knowing. So, so what does that imply then about uh, uh, what would happen at the, at the epistemological level uh, if you had a libertarian government? Level, of yeah, the, at, the, at the reason level. Yeah. Well, the example we had there was <laughs> pesticides. 
And we had a uh, government that was saying, well, although there's no evidence that these interactions will cause us harm, well, we just don't have evidence that they won't, uh, that they're, they're safe, you see. We don't have this assertion or this evidence that it's safe, and therefore we must assume that it's possible that these things are doing harm. Well, if you're not committed to logic, and that's an epistemological uh, philosophical stand, if, if your libertarian movement has no commitment to logic, you can't guarantee that your libertarian government won't make a decision exactly the same as the, as the liberal government did. How mm -hmm. could they not? How could, it, how could they rule out the position that, oh, well, um, uh, you know, um, we're, we're afraid that we're harming children's lives and liberty and property by, uh, by, not, by allowing these pesticides to be used, so uh, we're going to ban these pesticides. There's no way you can say that a government without an opposition to such irrationality, uh, that such a government would not go ahead with the same kind of thing that the McGuinty government did. So it's starting to look uh, pretty scary so far. We've got uh, windmills, we've got uh, pesticide bans. Yeah. What's up next? Well, what about the ethical level? Well, again, libertarianism says, well, we don't have any particular ethics. You know, you might uh, say that uh, your ethics is obedience to God is your highest, uh, your highest good, the highest thing you, you can do. You know, all this is, tell is explaining to me why libertarianism is, is becoming more attractive to all of the parties. And what do you think it means? <laughs> well, it, it, it's because all that subjectivism and, in, and even intrinsicism can be accepted within all that framework. Anything can work. Everybody feels included. That's right. Yeah. Except they're feeling included because the, because the movement itself is adopting no philosophy. So they feel that the philosophy is irrelevant, that their philosophies won't have anything to do with governance, or that maybe everyone will on a bits and bites, pick and poke uh, kind of basis. Mm. Right, but what would it, what would that mean in in the public schools? A libertarian government, if we had one right now, with these public schools, what could they say about not judging these other cultures? They couldn't say anything. They'd have to say, well, maybe these kids are right. Maybe maybe in Aisha's country, mutilation is acceptable. <laughs> Who are we to judge? We don't have an ethical philosophy that rules that out. And then finally, on the political level, you know, this commitment to consent—they're not. What you hear libertarians talk about is well, aggression. If there's no aggression, don't intervene, government. That's all you might hear a libertarian say. What does that mean? Well, that means if Iran's planning to bomb the United States when they've got nuclear capacity on the build, you don't preemptively strike. It means that if you've got some family with a, that's in, impoverished and there's a question about whether it should be legal to pimp out that 10-year-old uh, child they have to make money for the family because the child needs to eat, well, they're not going to make any uh, uh, moral qualms about that. Maybe they'll lower or even eliminate the age of consent. And we certainly see libertarians saying that the age of consent is, a, is an oppressive thing. You know, some people would say you can't be serious even saying that that's going on, and yet we know it is. Google it, you'll yeah. find it, and it's always in the name of libertarianism. Yeah. Finally, on copyright, mm -hmm. these guys literally say that, oh, what do you mean uh, values created by your mind? Look at all I'm doing is making copies. I'm not punching you in the face. And until I start punching you in the face, you have to leave me alone while I pirate, uh, piratize all of your uh, creations. This is what you end up with then, a government that uh, doesn't depend on evidence. There's even isn't a pirate logical. party in, the, in Europe, you know. Oh, yeah. Based on that one right. principle. So, so you have a, if, you had a liber if you actually had a libertarian government, its guiding philosophy would be radically skeptical and morally subjective. Moral subjectivism is the, the, the end game here. It wouldn't know what to do any differently than the liberals or the conservatives. There would be no philosophical basis for them to distinguish themselves from those. You would not end up with liberty with a libertarian government. Any, you would end up with any of a number of irrational tyrannies. So now that brings us 
to what se- section now? I understand we have, uh, I know this gets personal for you with, with the Freedom Party <laughs> issue. Oh, sure. And you're always under attack by libertarians of various sorts. I understand that's what we've got coming up next on these clips. Is you that got correct? it, yeah. And um, tell us a bit about what, who we're going to hear in this upcoming clip. Well, in this next clip, uh, we're going to hear a fellow named uh, Hugh McIntyre, who by some twist of fate, found himself uh, being printed in the National Post. He got for a while, he was allowed to post on their uh, mm-hmm. uh, blog section. And McIntyre, with Peter Jaworski, who I re- read about uh, earlier, uh, Hugh and, and Peter have worked together on numerous things. This is a, a clip of Hugh appearing on a radio show that, that uh, Peter had at Bowling Green University, giving his views about Paul McKeever's somewhat judgmental... Who's you? <laughs> yeah, somewhat judgmental view on what needs to be done in order to achieve a free society. And then on the other side, coming back on the bumper, we're going to hear you in conversation with both uh, Steve Pakin and, I believe, Michael Korn. Is that correct? Yeah, we won't hear an interruption between those two clips. Okay, we'll be back right after this. Who's on the phone? This is Hugh. Oh, hey, Hugh. Okay, great. Right. I just sent you an email. Uh, sorry, I, I'm on a payphone here, and it's a little bit... Uh... Oh, okay. Well, then, shoot. The floor is yours. Ask your question. All right. Well, I'd say, first of all, I disagree with uh, the learned leader of the Freedom Party, mostly because I don't care why you want the smaller government as long as you want smaller government. I mean, if a politician stood up and said, I want smaller government because... Uh, like a squirrel told me so, then I'll still vote for him. Like the philosophical basis of it is unimportant. Freedom Party. A lot of people don't know what it is. What is it? Well, it's a party that thinks that we're not getting uh, value for the dollars we're paying and that we're not getting choice in some areas that we need to have it in order to improve uh, services, so health care and education in particular. Is that a dramatically different message from, say, the Libertarian Party? Oh, yes. Uh, the Libertarian Party is um, largely, from what I've seen, sort of a social group that sits around talking about um, Libertarian writers, and uh, we're much more practical than that, and, and more incremental, I would say. But you, you both talk about getting the government out of people's lives and having the government be much less responsible for the choices people make in their lives. So to that extent, is there not a potential meeting of the minds? There's, if you wanted to get philosophical, we could. I, I guess the, the, the other thing that we really object to in Libertarianism is the whole um, moral relativism that founds the movement, and we're very much in favor of a party that has as its uh, guiding principle the idea that you know, there's reality and reason and self that should guide political decisions, not just if it feels good, do it. Uh, <laughs> now, Freedom Party, libertarian? No. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I would say libertarians are sort of a scraggly bunch of anti-government protesters. Uh, Freedom Party is a government, uh, wants a government that is rational, that defends every person's life, liberty and property better. Right. But you would be inspired by Hayek and Rand Friedman. Rand, yes. Kropotkin, Bakunin. No, definitely not. All right. Those are the anarchists. We are anti-anarchist, if you will. And it gets very that. complicated. It, it does, really it? does. But it's actually, I mean, it's just pretty much common sense. We want a government that makes sure that people uh, do a better job in government of defending life, liberty, and property. Well, Bob, you know... Yeah, welcome to my world. <laughs> Getting labeled libertarian every time you turn around. I mean, basically, uh, if you want to be a libertarian, then that means that you're uh, in the same camp as people who want uh, squirrels to run the government, apparently. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a sad thing. And, you know, uh, 
it often gets mistaken, uh, this idea of having a philosophy, governing according to a philosophy versus having to share the philosophy in your personal life. That is not the case. Just because a government has a governing philosophy doesn't mean all the members of the government uh, have to be, you know, walking in lockstep, lockstep in their own life right. that way. They can be Muslim in their own life. They can be Catholic in their own life. They the can government be a, has a philosophy in order to make its own choices. Just that's like right. Like you need a philosophy to make your choices. That's right. Which are different choices entirely. That's right. And, so, so, you know, this Hugh um, McIntyre, smart fella, uh, as I say, was in the National Post. And, you know, largely because I've been so insistent on that this idea that there's only one a philosophy for achieving a free society. He, he finds that personally insulting. I'm going to give you an example. He published mm -hmm. this on election day, uh, how libertarians should vote. And he says, different origins political, uh, for different uh, political movements come together around specific political principles and goals. It doesn't matter why two people agree that the political principle is good, as long as they can work together. I don't care that Mr. McKeever is an objectivist, that's a reference to my philosophy, because I agree with his political goals. This isn't good enough for Mr. McKeever. In fact, he can be pretty insulting about it. And in fact, he, was, he provided a link there back to me calling on, on, on Corrin's show saying, you know, anti, scraggly anti-government protesters. He says he has on several occasions spoken derisively about libertarians. To my mind, this means he doesn't really want my vote. If ideological purity is what he wants, then he doesn't want me. Well, listen, you're only really a libertarian if in fact you are. You want a movement that is skeptical. You want a movement that is morally relativistic. If, on the other hand, you're simply a person, any of the wide range of people who wants less government, not, uh, you don't embrace moral relativism. You don't embrace this idea that knowledge is unknowable. And, mm. uh, you know, if you're just a, a person in that sense, libertarian, don't call yourself a libertarian. You're putting yourself down because libertarianism was created for the purpose of making that you know, radically, skepti radically skeptical, morally subjectivist movement, and that government, if it ever happened, that libertarian style of government, would not create freedom. The better thing to call yourself is simply an advocate of smaller government, if you have to do that, or better, an advocate of rational governance. That's really what you are. You're objective. You want rational governance. And in your personal life, you can do whatever you want. And that goes for party membership, too. Just because, for example, you support Freedom Party and its idea that government has to have this rational philosophy doesn't mean that you can't in your own life uh, live your own way, whether it's religious, non-religious, or live your own well, philosophy. That's the whole point, is to right. keep that society free so you can make those kinds of exactly. choices. So it's not an insult to, to, the, to the person who d is not a moral uh, uh, subjectivist and is not a radical skeptic. The idea that government must have a rational philosophy is only insulting to those, what I would call the destroyers of, of a free society, those true blue libertarians. Well, that's not us, I guess, eh? That is not us. <laughs> We're the true blue freedom people. Well, thank you, Paul, for joining us on this final show of 2012. Merry Christmas, Bob. And th Merry Christmas to you and to all our listeners. And uh, Robert Vaughn and I should be back with your regular Thursday live broadcast of Just Right. I believe January 10th is the next day we're back, Paul, if the world hasn't ended by then. There's <laughs> <laughs> that mysticism creeping in. Right. So we've got to head out for another, another week. So join us again next year when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, do right, stay right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Humpty Dumpty!
Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men had omelets. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men had omelets.